Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Dan Huger. Eric Cohn is out this week. Thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find the show. This week, I'm joined by Dylan Palman, Act and Research Fellow and Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, and John Panero, Director of Research here at Acton. Today, we'll be talking about the role of technology in education and life, and an innovative scholarship program at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, which seeks to curb its excesses in modern student life. First, however, I want to begin our discussion in the United Kingdom, where last week, October 20th, Liz Truss resigned as prime minister. I can't imagine a better way to tee up our conversation of the latest political earthquake to come out of the United Kingdom than the words of Reverend Richard Turnbull, who wrote this last Friday for the Acton Institute's Power blog, quote, Boris Johnson, though deeply flawed, was the glue that held the British Conservative Party together. His electoral reach, charisma, and commitment to deliver Brexit put together a huge majority of 80 seats over all other parties combined in the 650-seat House of Commons. But that glue came unstuck owing to Boris's own character flaws, and now, in the resulting chaos, the Conservative Party itself has come apart at the seams, squandering the largest parliamentary majority in recent times. Cabinet ministers fell like stones. Members of parliament demanded the reversal of the vote of the membership. The prime minister herself was charged, uh, herself changed policy on issues day by day, hour by hour. Unable either to command her party or deliver on her electoral mandate, Liz Truss resigned on October 20th, just 45 days in office, the shortest premiership in British history, end quote. This show's regular host, in fact, Eric Cohn, a resident of Grand Rapids, was actually in the United Kingdom for about 7% of Liz Truss's tenure as prime minister. Gentlemen, what do you make of this news? Uh, So I'm... You know, as an American, I have no inside, you know, uh, line on what's going on in Britain uh, outside of what I'm reading in the news. Um, But I do think it factors into a lot of what we've seen just in uh, conservatism in the West as a whole. Um, And I think British politics are at least a little more like uh, American uh, than continental Europe. Um, and and I think that that uh, Reverend Turnbull did a great job kind of parsing the three different constituencies uh, involved here that you have kind of the classical liberal pro-market sorts. You have the social conservative anti-immigration uh, pro-Brexit sorts. And then you have kind of just the party elite um, and, you know, the people who are there to advance, you know, maybe some kind of agenda, but mostly to advance their careers. Um, and... Uh, I think you see a fracturing happening in Britain uh, with the resignation of trust and with the breakdown of of Johnson's uh, premiership before that, um, that that mirrors a little bit of what we've seen in the United States. We've talked previously on this podcast about efforts to build a new American coalition with uh, some of the national conservatives, uh, people like Yoram Hazoni um, and others in their conferences. Um, and I think you see you see a similar thing happening, and it really 
raises the question to me, um, a really interesting question, because the conservatives are still in charge in the UK, um, and Republicans do still win elections here in the United States, uh, not to equate republicanism and conservatism. Um, but there is a, a base, a membership, uh, you know, a voter base for it. Um, and that, that voter base is just continually more and more out of sync uh, with party leadership, uh, both uh, in the UK and in the United States. Um, and so we'll see. Uh, it was just announced today, um, you know, the new uh, uh, prime minister. Uh, it's basically, you know, Turnbull points him out uh, as kind of the members of parliament's pick, uh, not really the the voters pick um, and or the people's pick. And so they're the, you know, if you want to put it in you know, terms I don't always like, but the elites are kind of getting their way now. Um, and we'll see how that pans out. When we talk about political parties, uh, where I like to start, and I guess I should preface my comments as well by saying, as an American, <laughs> uh, I, don't have a, I don't have an inside scoop on UK politics, nor do I really have a dog in the fight. But also as an American, and thinking as an, an American who's also an historian, I recognize that uh, our moral and legal and political traditions descend through the British primarily. And so that's there's just this kind of attraction that Americans seem to have to British politics and particularly uh, despite the revolution to the English royal family. Uh, but in this case, thankfully, we're not talking about uh, royalty, are we? We're just talking about parliament. P political parties are coalitions. In parliamentary democracies, sometimes it takes coalitions of parties to rule, but not in the case of the, the Tories, the conservatives. So the interesting thing here for me is that we can talk about potential realignment among conservatives and those laying name to conservativism in the United States. At the same time, we can talk about it in Italy. At the same time, we can talk about it in the UK. And so across the Western world, there's something, and this is what we ought to be thinking the most about, there's something or a number of things that has divided these traditional coalitions that once were able to cooperate with one or two or three primary goals and they could cooperate and now they can't seem to. And this is something Reverend Turnbull talks about in his, in his great essay as well, you know, trying to, hold, trying to hold that together. The working people who would have voted Labor before, but then they kind of like Johnson and Brexit. And now where did they go? The working people who maybe in the 1980s would have been uh, Democrats who voted Reagan. Then they became Democrats who voted Trump. And now, now wh where are they going to go? I would agree with uh, Dylan that we want to be careful to call the American Republican Party conservative. But clearly that's their natural base, people who would identify that way, much like the Tories. But I'm not sure how conservative Tory governance has been either. Yeah. I mean, and it's important, it's important to, to, to remember, and, and, and Reverend Turnbull gets into this, that Liz Truss was a compromise candidate. Um, but she was regularly described in the media as part of a sort of uh, classical liberal or neoliberal wing of the conservative party. Um, that's partly correct, as she did see economic growth as sort of an essential part of what she wanted to accomplish in her premiership. Um, and her proposed agenda involved tax cuts, deregulation, increased immigration. But as Reverend Turnbull also pointed out uh, in his piece, that also involved continual 
continuing government spending that's been its high, at its highest levels in living memory, does the implosion of the British government fueled in part by a negative market reaction to her agenda mean the death of neoliberalism or classical liberalism as – a political program. Dylan, you, you, you raised the specter of you know, folks on the new right. Um, it, it, a lot of those folks see this as like a vindication of their critiques of, of this earlier liberal tradition. What do you make of that? Uh, neoliberalism is dead. Long live neoliberalism. Uh, it's, this is a, one of these weasel words. Uh, it's kind of a black box. People like to throw in everything they don't like about the current world. Um, and actually, one of the most interesting shifts, at least in American politics, but I think I think I can I've seen a, a at least a continental trend for this as well, is to just drop the neo and start con- critiquing liberalism in general, um, as if it wasn't already bad enough to have a, a you know weaselly black box term that people were just filling with whatever meaning they want. Now it's the entire liberal tradition uh, that somehow is. You know, has I mean, it's almost very Marxist that it has all these internal contradictions. Or is this thirty-one flavors can just be distilled into vanilla um, and whatever people want to characterize it as? So I would say no. Um, there, there's a lot of forces that to be charitable. Um, the most coherent definition of le- neoliberalism that I can think of would be like something like the Washington Consensus. Um, you know, pro-market and development, um, maybe also paired with a kind of hawkish foreign policy. Um, so you, you put those things together and, yeah, you're going to get differences of degrees, uh, but I think you're still going to get a lot of Western governments operating with a similar sort of paradigm for better and worse. Um, so I would say no, um, but we'll see. Um, I mean, that's kind of always the case. So neoliberal, to be clear, like people think Obama's a neoliberal. People think, you know, <laughs> you know it's the sort of thing that cuts across parties. It's not particularly conservative. Um, it might be that the way forward for the left in Britain is to reclaim neoliberalism for their side, right? If the, the conservatives can't hold it together, rather than simply them falling apart being an indictment of uh you know, or the you know the the death knell of of this kind of uh, policy and way of operating. So this is this is um, you know an, an arbitrage opportunity for uh, new labor. <laughs> Maybe new new labor. <laughs> if major parties are coalitions, if they are, and I think I think they are, uh, then one of the things Dylan points out here, I think, is true, and, and that is that if you're going to um, that labor, the conservatives, on all sides, uh, there's there's constituencies out there to be had. And just because they've existed primarily in one party rather than the other for years doesn't mean they're going to remain there, whether that's American politics or British politics. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the labor voters who are voting conservative, I mean, we see – Similar. Again, I don't want to equivocate. Uh, There's differences in the right and left between the United States and Great Britain. But there was a phenomena of Obama-Trump voters uh, here in the United States, right? Um, And arguably, you know, they they were just this group of people, maybe conservative social values, but kind of economically protectionist or nationalist um, that Hillary Clinton could not successfully appeal to or did not successfully appeal to. Um, and you see similar things in the United, in uh, Great Britain. 
Um, what's interesting to me is in both cases, that's kind of new, right? I mean, that's maybe the last five years you have Brexit and you have Trumpism and, you know, that that kind of brand of conservatism. Um, and if anything, if anything, um, my question is, are we reverting to the mean, uh, which would be a more neoliberalist, neoliberal sort of approach from the right and the left? Yeah. And some historical context, I think Dylan gave a very good sort of working definition of neoliberalism. But if we go back to the Walter Lippmann colloquium, and this is after the First World War, this is bringing together economists, thinkers who realized we were increasingly asking government to do more. And they saw some merit to that in terms of a robust social safety net, in terms of government support for education and that sort of thing. But they also saw the dangers in that to a free society. And how how could they thread the needle to maybe have a more robust state than the sort of classical liberal 19th century example of, of, of how a free society was cultivated uh, while addressing the concerns of mass democracy and these new phenomena that we saw in the 20th century. Um, what are the tensions? Yeah, John. No, neither of the two, neither of the major parties, but particularly the conservative party in Britain now, could we qualify them as, as small government in some sort of Thatcher-like way, can we? And so... I, it, why did trust not last very long? Well, because she, what she tried to do was take people who were drunk on free money and pull it back. And that's just not going – it wouldn't work in the United States. It wouldn't work in Britain. But I think that the spigot has been much more open in Britain for several decades compared to the United States. And this this is why you can talk about low taxes in the United States and maybe somebody's still going to vote for you. But it's a little bit more difficult, it seems, for trust to have accomplished that. I'm going to spend more and tax less. And people can do math. Yeah. And we're, <laughs> we're in a very different world in terms of levels of government debt that, you know, that we look in the United States and uh, in the entire Western world. We're looking at much more highly leveraged societies across the board, both with consumer credit and with, with state spending. Now, two weeks ago, which – you know, as we've learned since, it's like a decade in British politics. Um, <laughs> it's like dog years. Isn't yeah. It? John, John O. McGinnis uh, at Law and Liberty wrote a very thought-provoking piece entitled New Avatars of the Right. Um, and he writes, quote, there is a battle going on across the West about the nature of the right. Should it reflect more of the right liberalism of Thatcher and Reagan or more of the national right, sometimes called right illiberalism as defined by leaders like Viktor Orban? This fall, uh, this fall has seen the selection of two female prime ministers, Liz Truss of Great Britain and uh, Georgia uh, Meloni of Italy on opposite sides of this divide. End quote. In this piece, Tuss is characterized as a light, right liberal, while Meloni is someone with roots, quote, on the nationalist corporatist right, end quote. What does the failure of the trust government tell us about the future of American conservatism and the right more generally in this sort of contest between, between differing versions of the future of the right? Uh, well, I mean, I think, it, you know, John already mentioned, you know, she wanted to cut back spending and taxes, but very quickly walked back the spending part of that. And, you know, there there is just that kind of purely economic right agenda, um, again, maybe more so in Great Britain, the United States, although I would be 
surprised to see it successful in the United States. Uh, it's it's just not very popular. It's not it, it doesn't hold itself up, um, and I think that was part of uh, McGinnis's. Uh, piece and pointing to uh, the situation in Italy, where you have kind of the opposite, very much a social conservative, talking about family before market and state, right? Um, using that sort of rhetoric, uh, something that we hear a little bit among our national conservatives and integralists here. Um, uh, something that I think is important, family is is integral to every nation, and, and it should not... Um, you know, be endangered by state power or market forces. Um, on the other hand, that rhetoric can mean a lot of things. And um, it doesn't mean more liberty necessarily uh, in Italy. It it means, you know, a more expansive welfare state uh, for the family or, you know, supposedly pro-family or pro-church policies. Um, and that's different than reining back policies. Um, and the question he raises, and I think it'll be interesting to see if it gets put to the test, uh, is whether the opposite can be true in Italy, right? Can you just have that social conservative agenda without the fiscal responsibility uh, that goes with it? I think I think the two have always needed each other. I think the idea that despite the fact that, of course, it was a coalition, uh, but the idea that fusionism has no uh, internal coherence, um, I think, is wrong. I think, uh, you know, Acton affiliate Stephanie Slade uh, wrote a great piece a few years ago now about the philosophy of fusionism. Um, And there is a coherence to it. Uh, If you care about uh, families, families thrive in free markets. Um, We we have good data uh, for this sort of thing. Uh, If you care about markets, well, you actually need intact, healthy families, right? The, the kind of core values of social conservatism um, augment and form that foundation needed for the economic uh, liberalism uh, that's associated with the, the economic right. Um, so we're, we're seeing people trying it. And of course, we've tried it a little bit in the United States uh, with Trump to go more in the protectionist direction, less in the economically liberal direction. Um, and I don't think it's worked very well for housing prices. I can tell you that. Something that matters to a lot of families out there. Um, we have tariffs on Canadian lumber. Why? <laughs> like there's just a lot. And so we're not building new homes. And so housing prices are skyrocketing. Um, that hurts families. It's not just a matter of uh, the bottom line for builders, uh, you know, although that matters, too, because guess what? Builders have families. Um, but so, I mean, we can we can look at this in a lot of directions, but um, I think we're putting to the test whether or not it's actually coherent to separate these elements. Um, and at least in Britain, the answer seems to be no. Yeah, I think I think separation is is the big question. So if those can those can those that is fiscal conservatism as we used to say in the 80s also also do they have to be in the same party or coalition with the the social conservatives which in in Italy would concern those uh, also who love the church and who see the EU as a threat to the dignity of the human person and to the family and to what it means to be an Italian but then of course Italy as a founding member of the EU is going to have there there's there, it's very it's complex as as uh, we should say so can you separate those? I think if we start with the human person and progress out to the family and talk about principles like subsidiarity, well, then no, you can't separate those, not in principle. But when it comes to long-term policy, I think what, what trust ran up against, at least in the UK, is that you can't, you can't step back 
with a very sudden shift in today's political climate, either in the United States or at Great Britain or anywhere else for that matter, where there has been an open spigot of relatively free money loaned out to the, the people. You can't do it in the United States. Uh, you can't do it elsewhere. The, the, the families who are being hurt by some of the government policies Dylan alluded to and others, including, uh, including uh, you know, this connects to the college loan crisis, et cetera. It's a real easy sell to say in a democracy and to get votes that I, I will just pay off your, your debt, right? I'll pay off your debt. That's the hardest thing for you. You know what you need? You need free daycare until 6 p.m. at night. This was, this was one of the old uh, Tory ideas to promote family, right? You'll just have daycare all day. You won't be around your children, but at least it'll be free while you're working to pay the exorbitant tax bill. I mean, th these are the kind of problems, the real world problems you're going to run up to trying to make, trying to make policy here. Yeah, and I think, I think it's important when you take a step back at this that all of these factors are intertwined that what we have are not, are not false problems, that we just need the political will somehow and they're overcome. But these are real problems and challenges in the way economies are structured, in the way that we have levels of debt that we haven't, uh, in the way that we have trade barriers. All of these things, you know, we've seen around the West, you know, we've we've had three things: housing, healthcare, and education, that are insert. You know, that we've seen sort of endemic price rises, uh, in part because uh, we keep subsidizing demand in all sorts of ways, and we close off avenues to sort of innovate out of those problems with entrenched interests. Um, but I think there 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 is something to both of these movements. Um, and, I think, and I think you're right that it's a mistake to separate them. Uh, last week, the economist Tyler Cowen wrote a fascinating piece that sort of really dovetails nicely into this conversation called Classical Liberalism Versus the New Right. And he characterizes the main difference between the, the classical liberals and the new right as, quote, how much faith each group puts in the possibility of trustworthy, well-functioning elites, end quote. But he also sees a fundamental similarity, uh, quote, the new right doesn't entirely reject the basic principles of free market economics, but it does try to transcend libertarian views with a deeper understanding of the current power structure. In each case, there are sociological forces operating that are seen as more important than mere free market economics. In this regard, the new right is more interdisciplinary in its worldview than most classical liberals. The new right thinkers regard most power as, as cultural in nature rather than as rooted in the coercive power of government alone. Does this analysis seem plausible? Uh, what are the fault lines between these movements? And is there a possible sort of deep synthesis that folks on, on both sides of this divide overlook? I usually like Tower, Tyler Cowen and find him very insightful, but I think he's got this very backwards in a lot of ways, actually. Um, I don't see the new right as having less faith in elites. Um, they complain about elites more. Um, so in that sense, sure, they don't like the current elites we have, but their solution is uh, we just got to be the elites 
right? As if, as if power won't corrupt them too. Whereas I see the, you know, the classically liberal position is embracing, you know, Lord Acton's dictum that power tends to corrupt. Uh, that's why it supports things like checks and balances in government and division of powers and free markets. Um, so I don't, I don't entirely buy into that. I mean, I see it's, it's not that there's no merit to what he's saying, but I just, I find the framing problematic. Um, and I think the point I would give him is that there is a more of an interdisciplinary emphasis on the new right, with the exception of the discipline of economics, because they don't seem to care very much about that at all or know very much about that at all. And I think the, you know, the classical liberal right, uh, the kind of center right to which I identify most with, uh, ought to at least take this as a reminder that, hey, you can't just be economic libertarians and just presume that's, that's going to be enough. It isn't enough. Um, again, uh, trying to separate out the components of the old fusionist coalition is, in fact, more incoherent, at the very least, uh, than keeping them together. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of my my hot take on that, uh, <laughs> I suppose. Um, but that was my impression uh, uh, that I I don't quite entirely buy that that analysis. Bureaucracies are faulty because people are faulty. Uh, I was reading uh, Walter Badgett just this morning on this uh, on this very this very topic, and and that is that you know what what's wrong with bureaucracy is what's wrong with us. So if we think that we can get our elites into power and we'll behave differently, uh, that's that's a danger. People often know people often think they know how they would deal with power having it. Those are people without power, but you don't know till you have it. Right. And so there's there's a sense where we want to ask, so what's most in accord with human nature and who is most aware of human nature? Well, the person who's worried about the power corrupting them already, the person who's promoting the types of institutions that are geared towards uh, disallowing power from individuals or individuals to amass to amass that kind of power and asking what's what's good for the person. Now, when 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 Tawan, uh, when Cowan says that uh, the new right thinkers regard most power as cultural in nature and not rooted in coercive government alone. I think he's on to something that the new right's actually uh, uh, correct about, and that is that that is the influence of culture on the human person. Or what we, we could talk about what Tocqueville called mores. We could talk about the power of custom and tradition to bind us in ways that laws don't. People break. People break a lot of laws. At least when I drive to work, I see it. I see it quite a bit, right? But the people breaking those laws, they're probably not going to show up. I hope to a job interview in sweatpants, not shake hands. I think shaking hands is coming back, uh, from from what I can tell from recent events. But uh, those kinds of things that are just customary, we do, and we do them because we're bound in a different way than just because positive laws telling us we have to do that, right? And and so I think at least the right has correct that, that culture really matters, that it isn't just a matter then of saying we need a balanced budget and low taxes and everything's going to work out just great. So my problem with them, though, is these are the same people, or at least some of them are the same people, uh, who very much applaud Do former President Donald Trump for just saying what he, what he means, you know, uh, and flaunting, uh, you know, all propriety. Um, and so I, again, I, I just don't, I find the analysis backwards. I think, you know, these are people who, 
he says, you know, they they they're more comfortable with restrictions on speech. I think, if anything, they're pretty hardcore free speech advocates to a fault, um, to to some degree. I mean, I, I don't think we need laws against you know uh, certain kinds of speech, but I do think propriety matters. Uh, you know, Adam Smith pointed out, you know, as, as John just pointed out, that you got to start with these these basic courtesies, and that's how you actually form uh, some kind of a, a moral sense within you and a moral culture um, that serves as the the ecosystem for virtuous behavior um, so I <laughs> that's a, a small pushback I guess but I I just don't see it I mean I these people will maybe hypocritically shake your hand and smile and be polite uh, when you meet them um, but when they got a microphone in front of their face uh, they're very happy to just throw all that stuff under the bus so you know, maybe there's a disconnect between the message and the messengers, um, but their rhetoric, at least, does not seem to promote uh, what I think is a very essential foundation of a moral culture, which is propriety. And there's gradations of that that have been exacerbated by social media and technology. So you're, you're yeah. right. You might you can meet one of these people in a coffee shop, have a great conversation, mm-hmm. and you come away thinking, we agree on so much. How are we not political allies? How, yeah. how are we not allies in this? And then uh, you see uh, you see them behind a microphone, and it's different. And then you look at their Twitter feed, yeah. And it's even it's even it's it's down a level from from the microphone. Right? Yeah. My sort of thought of, and I'm much more sympathetic to Cowan's analysis than Dylan is. But one of the things that brought to mind was that there is a history in libertarianism of an analysis of power. There's a class analysis. If you look at people like Frederick Bastiat, uh, plunder is not just a rhetorical flourish. He believes that there are people that seize the state to their own ends and exploit it to their own ends. One of his one of his projects that he never got around to in his tragically short life was a history of plunder. And so there is, I think, I think there 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 is a legitimate critique of elites as not merely ignorant, but sometimes malicious. I think it's wrong to overlook that ignorance. And I think there's a lot we have in public choice economics. There's a lot we have that can that can assess, you know, it's not all malice either. Um, and I think that there's I think when you when you refuse to consider the possibility of both, you end up with some serious blinders and you end up with these sort of rhetorical excesses that, that, that John has pointed to. I think, that's, I think that's very, very true. And there is – I'd encourage, I'd encourage you know, all, all three of these pieces that I've featured. You know, this was one of those days when I was putting together what to talk about. I was like, there's some real synchronicity here. And I think this is, this is part of a larger ongoing conversation that we've all been part of for a long time. It's a current event, but it, it, I think it points to real fissures in our times and we need to think through these things carefully and not merely devalue and dismiss, as, as Tyler Cowen would say, uh, our ideological opponents, uh, as, as, as tempting as that can be. Now, John also pointed to a technological angle to what he thinks is the breakdown of, of trust 
of uh, uh, of of putting the best construction on others. And uh, as we shift from the political to to an explicit uh, interrogation of the question concerning technology, um, the Acton Institute's own indomitable Sarah Negri uh, brought this to my attention last week, that there is a uh, new scholarship available to students at her alma mater, the Franciscan University of Steubenville, which uh, launched uh, just this last month, called the Unplugged Scholarship, uh, which awards financial assistance to students who give up using smartphones for the duration of their undergraduate studies. Uh, Franciscan University's vice president of advancement announced, quote, this scholarship will help free up will help our students to focus on the heart of this formation, relationship with the Lord and each other. As our scriptural theme this year reminds us, we are called to freedom to serve one another through love, end quote. Uh, Noelle Mearing, uh, writing for Newsweek, uh, did some reporting on sort of the early dividends of this for students. Uh, quote, uh, Tim Delaney, executive director of alumni and constituent relations at, FSU, uh, or at FUS, reports that the initial meeting included comical woes such as having to ask a stranger for directions as well as serious triumphs. One young man confided to the group that not having his phone was proving to be the beginning of the end of a struggle with pornography. A young woman spoke of the diagnosis and long battle with anxiety and depression and the alleviation of both after having uh, been smartphone-free. Living daily life without the endless stream of information, comparison, insecurities, and scattered attention that comes with smartphones proved to be far more curative than anyone might have imagined, uh, end quote. What do you make of this new initiative as a way forward for education? And indeed, you know, I mean, if, if the upside's to believe, this is dividends for all of life. Well, the, the young man who had to stop and ask a stranger— for directions. This is interesting. I think about the, you know, the innumerable marriages that have been improved because the man no longer has to be convinced to stop and ask for directions, <laughs> but simply can consult the GPS. So maybe this maybe this cuts both ways. But uh, more seriously, what I what I heard of this scholarship, uh, the the first thing I thought of was was a book that's used. Uh, quite a bit by the administration at Sacred Heart Academy in, in Grand Rapids, this classical academy in Grand Rapids. And it's The TechWise Family by Andy Crouch, published by Baker Books, also in Grand Rapids. Uh, I guess like the Chamber of Commerce for Grand Rapids today. Uh, but but and the TechWise Family has a lot of really, really good advice on not being completely anti-technology, not wanting to go back to the Stone Age, so to speak. That's usually for green parties. I think you want to promote that kind of thing. But simply to put it in its proper place and what, what might that mean? And I see this scholarship as fitting, fitting in with that. I think there's, you know, there's, there's some critiques I could offer from the outside, but I think it's a very interesting idea. Uh, I know there, there are places where you leave your cell phone behind entirely or there's no internet on some campuses. I mean, there's a lot of radical attempts to try to do, in particular, it seems to be the smartphone, not just technology. I mean, I assume they're going to be in rooms at Steubenville that have electric light, for instance. Yes, yeah. 
A good assumption. Uh, <laughs> um, not, not always. You know, you don't. Yeah. Sure. Knows? Sure. Um, yeah. Because um, maybe light uh, it makes us too soft. We should should be like the University of Paris when Thomas Aquinas was there. We'll sit on straw and listen to a six hour lecture, and that's just the AM hours. Is, is the candle though too dangerous of a technology to allow us to read at night? Uh, that is the question. Cuts Actually, it, cuts it to valuable sleep time. <laughs> you know, I've been trying to sleep a little more, and there might be something to that. Um, and I think there might be something to this scholarship. Uh, I I th- immediately thought of two uh, ancient Christian uh, kind of moral uh, rubrics, I guess, uh, or um, schemes of uh, categorization. Um, one is borrowed from the Stoics, um, but it's east and west. You can find a lot of Christian teachers writing this way. I think you even find it in the New Testament, frankly. Uh, it's the idea that uh, the only good in life is virtue, communion with God. The only evil is vice and sin. And everything else is morally indifferent and only good or evil to the extent that it's used for virtue or vice. Um, I think the same is true of cell phones. Um, I was a late adopter of the cell phone. In fact, I only got one, I think, two years ago when my uh, phone company refused to provide service for the, the little flip phone I Smartphone, had. Smartphone, not yeah. cell phones. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, had a, I had a cell phone, although that was also like uh, my wife, when we first started dating, was like, here, like, <laughs> signed you up for a cell phone, you know, or whatever. Um, and again, you know, like, it's great to be able to text my wife, hey, I love you, how's your day, you know, that sort of thing. I think you can use technology in very, very good ways, including s- smartphones. It took me about a year to remember I have Google on my phone so I could actually Google how to get somewhere. Um, and I was like, wow, this is great, right? Um, I have a Catholic Bible app on my phone that I use uh, to try to stay in touch, uh, you know, read scripture at, when I have a little moment here and there. And it's great to just always have that in my pocket. Um, however, I very intentionally have no social media on my phone. Um, and I, I don't think that it necessarily corrupts, but uh, there is an analogy, at least, to power. Uh, you know, uh, internet, smartphones, social media corrupts. Uh, I don't know what absolute social media would be, but I'm sure it would corru- it corrupt TikTok. absolutely. Absolute, absolute social <laughs> TikTok. media is TikTok. <laughs> uh, totalitarian, at least, uh, in origin. Um, so I look at that as there's – there's so there's a Christian paradigm to say um, this sort of prohibition might not – be for everyone, but it absolutely can be beneficial. If you see this as an obstacle to virtue, just like Christians fast from food, we don't think that any food, there's no, you know, we don't have any kosher rules or any other sort of taboo, um, but we do fast uh, at different times, depending on the tradition, um, to teach ourselves self-discipline, right? And uh, to learn not to always say yes to every impulse we have, but to say no to ourselves. That's how you actually become self-governing and free in that higher moral sense. Uh, So that's the first category. Second category of analysis is moral motivation. So why do we do what is moral? Um, There's a lot of commentary on this, um, in part uh, commentary on, say, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, as well as other teachings in scripture. Um, I think also, uh, well, I'll get to it, um, but uh, St. John's teaching on love, um, where you have the prodigal. He tells his father, I want my inheritance. I want to go live whatever life I want, basically saying, I wish you were dead, because that's when you ordinarily get an inheritance. Um, and the father says, all right, that's what you want. Here's, here it is. Go, go live how you want. Uh, and he squanders it, and he ends up feeding pigs. Um, and he's living, he literally gives himself over to a beastly existence. And now he's longing, if only I could be like the pig, at least has something to eat, right? Um, and he comes to himself. 
Um, so he has this fear of not going anywhere else, fear of the consequences of uh, his his sin and his his poor decisions. And he comes to himself and he says, well, I could go back to my father and maybe I could be one of one of his hired hired people, right? His hired servants. Uh, and that would be good enough, right? Um, and he gets there and the father, it turns out, has been watching every day for him to return. He embraces him. Before he can even get the, he gets half of his pre-planned script out. Before he can even get there, the father is like throwing a party uh, and to the point where the other son is envious and says, you know, how come I don't even get to, to throw a party for my friends? He says, son, all that I have is yours. You've been with me this whole time. Um, and what they draw out of this uh, is three motivations. There's fear of punishment. That's kind of the lowest moral motivation, but you got to start somewhere. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, the next is the desire for reward. And that's kind of the, the so they talk about a slave in the first case. They talk about a, a hireling or a steward in the second case. And then the last is just to obey the father out of love, uh, to obey the commandments out of love. Uh, and that's the disposition of sonship or, you know, to be a child of God. Um, as St. John says, uh, you know, fear casts or love casts out fear. Uh, St. Anthony, I think, very artfully uh, put these things together where he, uh, he famously said, uh, now I no longer fear God, but I love him for love casts out fear. Um, you start with that fear of God, but the point is to be a child of God. Um, so they use these categories uh, as as trying to to get Christians to conceptualize uh, their behavior, that it's you know despite uh, often caricatures uh, of Christian morality and eschatology is oh it's all about fear of hell or it's all about wanting some kind of reward in heaven. Really, the purest version of the Christian life is that life of love, and uh, to the extent that. Uh, Smartphones can be a temptation for anyone, uh, but perhaps especially the the you know younger people. Um, it's interesting to see these play out. So at uh, Steubenville was well, uh, sorry, the Franciscan University of Steubenville was inspired by Wyoming Catholic University. Wyoming Catholic has a prohibition on smartphones. They students are not allowed to have them. So that is a fear of punishment as the motivation. Uh, the scholarship is a reward. Uh, if you volunteer to n not have a, s a smartphone, you will be rewarded with a scholarship. 30 students uh, receive the scholarship, if I have my numbers correct. Um, but what's interesting is 50 more decide to do it anyway, not for any material reward, but simply for the good of doing what you know the perception would be, would be what's good for their soul. Right. Uh, so for love of the good, they're trying it out as well. Um, and it'll be interesting to see uh, how effective it is in all of these cases. I think in all of them, it can be positive. As I said, these are not all negative. They're all varying gradations of good motivation. Right. Um, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, does, is there anyone at Wyoming Catholic that resents the policy? Are there people getting the scholarship uh, who are constantly borrowing their friend's phone to check their social media? Uh, you know, how how strictly or not um, are you know people able to follow this? And is it the sort of thing where, yeah, it was great as long as I wasn't at all able to do it. Uh, but suddenly now I'm back in the real world and I got a smartphone and I have no self-control because I, ha I wasn't actually building self-control. I was just forced to artificially live in 
the absence of this temptation. Um, so I would be, I would love for some enterprising social scientist uh, to do like a longitudinal study on these two schools to to see how this pans out. Dylan, you bring up a very interesting moral question. If we put ourselves into a bubble for too long, and we know we're going to be out of the bubble eventually, then how? to what degree is that inhibiting our ability to behave virtuously? So in thinking about phones, for instance, I, like you, had a flip phone till fairly recently uh, in the car in case of emergencies, then got a smartphone. And uh, you know, the smartphone's been a very handy tool for me. But I didn't grow up with my face in a screen all the time, and I didn't grow up with smartphones, and I didn't grow up with this idea that if I had a question, I could have an instant answer. And so think about the think about the virtues of not having the smartphone. And I think a, a liberal arts university like Franciscan University of Steubenville, I'm assuming they're thinking about how to grow in wisdom, which is the purpose of being liberally educated. Uh, and one of the things we need to do is train our mind to think about information, to consider it, to weigh it, right, to measure consequences, to think prudently, et cetera. And we can't do that if we have the answers at our fingertips all the time. We can't even train our mind to retain information because we have the answers at our fingertips all the time. Think about the difference between an an oral culture whose members can remember uh, poems thousands and thousands of lines long and somebody who says, I feel like I heard that before. And then you Google three random words and you come up with it. And that, that's, that's a very, very different, right? So just memory. So I'm thinking if we, if we already have the wisdom, we can adopt a tool like this and be more likely virtuously to use it. But if the tool itself is preventative of developing that wisdom in the first place, then you know maybe a scholarship like this can help. But I wonder what life was like prior to college. This is a scholarship in college after all. On tools themselves, I think of this great exhibit I saw at, uh, at the uh, Grand Rapids Public Museum that was here last year, and it had a smartphone on one side, and then a very large room containing all sorts of technologies, like maps, yeah. <laughs> like maps, like flashlights, all the kinds of things that your smartphone does. And its point was all these things that you could not carry around unless you had five servants with packs on their backs, they're all on your phone and you're carrying it around. I mean, here's your servant. Do I have servants? Yes, I have, I have 12 of them, but they're all, they're all <laughs> on my smartphone. And that's a very handy thing. Just the other day, I was having to air up tires. I couldn't see the little nozzles, pulled out the phone. I, sure, I could have carried a flashlight, but I guess I'd be glad that I wasn't, I wasn't at a place where I was forbidden to have a phone. I would have been able to air up my tires. So I, I don't know if you're going to liberally educate people I guess I would opt for the Franciscan approach over the more coercive approach. Uh, we've, I recall having this uh, argument at, uh, at Aquinas College when there were some who were looking to ban smoking of tobacco entirely on campus and some who were saying, uh, I was in the campus and said, look, this is a liberal arts campus. We're trying to liberate people to make free and virtuous decisions and how can we do that if we make all their decisions for them? I think if we could just start with not having co-ed dormitories, right. that maybe we could, uh, why don't we shoot for fornication-free before we sh- shoot for, for smoke-free, for instance? This is, I think the, the value of something like this is the conversations that ensue because of it, 
when Dylan points out, you know, there's there's 30 scholarships and yet 50 students join. I'm I'm curious to see if you would have a similar effect if, let's say, a homily was preached on campus about the dangers of, I mean, you have you have you know, people who you know report, you know, struggling for temptation with temptation, presumably for years as a cause of this device that they had been carrying around, people developing depression, anxiety that they attribute to this device. So this is an occasion to think through those things. And I think that that is uh, extremely good. And what's most telling to me is that these are these are religious students attending a religious liberal arts university. And evidently, before this scholarship, at least among some, they had never considered the implications of something that they were literally carrying around in their pocket and how it was affecting them in their life. And I think anytime you can do that sort of introspective turn, that's a very profitable thing. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm delighted to hear the good news from the students at Steubenville and wish them and wish them all the best in that. It is good news. And you notice it started with an incentive, right? The incentive is the scholarship and a few sign on. And those are, those are people who want to do it. And then those others just from choice, just from wanting to grow in virtue and wisdom. And that's why I think the scholarship idea is very much a superior approach than a blanket policy. I mean, imagine the, imagine the student at another college who has an ill parent and wants to, wants to have the phone on their hip, for, for instance. I mean, that's, that's just one example I could think of. So I, I think the Steubenville, the Steubenville scholarship is much more in keeping with a traditional liberal, liberal arts idea of liberating you. So another aspect to this, and I think we've already drawn out some of these examples, um, is you have these religious liberal arts schools, and schools are very high population density, right? In fact, my, my wife is from a town, Winona, Minnesota, that doubles in population uh, over the school year because they have uh, a university there. Um, and when you have people everywhere, you could Google stuff, and you might get a more accurate answer, although there is fake and bad stuff on the internet, even when you're trying to get the right answer. Um, or you could just talk to your neighbor. Um, one of the biggest boosters of uh, the smartphone technology in recent years that I've come across uh, is comedian Arsenio Hall, uh, who in a, a Netflix special a few years ago, uh, and I'm not going to be able to make this funny like him, uh, but he was talking about how he loves his smartphone. He does everything on his smartphone. He orders food and he you know, watches movies and he goes on the internet and he sends messages and all of that. He loves it and he loves doing everything with it except for one thing talking to people, which, for those who don't know, was the original <laughs> purpose of the phone. <laughs> um, but that's the one thing somebody calls, and I, I have the same experience. Somebody calls, I'm like, why wouldn't they text? Was, you know, That was the fascinating I, I, thing about the car phone, <laughs> yeah. was that you could take a phone call in your car. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, right, right. But as soon as that tech, and Jerry Seinfeld has talked about this as well, another comedian, that as soon as the text was invented, Talking was done. No one wants to talk when you could text. Just give me that five-word text that lets me know what you want. Don't make me find a quiet place somewhere in the corner of my office so I can have this conversation with you. Um, and 
I think there's immense good to all the convenience that has caused, but it is always worthwhile to ask yourself what is lost. Uh, you know, even when something's good, it doesn't mean that it comes without a cost. And um, we've seen, especially in the last two years, uh, what happens when you take away face-to-face -face interaction with other human beings. And it's not good. Um, I don't think the smartphone is necessarily an obstacle to that. Um, but to the extent that it can be, uh, it's great to hear of colleges and students encouraging that face-to-face -face interaction. I mean, that's part of what fellowship is all about. Again, not to say you can't have that on social media or online platforms or whatever. Um, but if you got someone, if you got roommates, if you got sweet mates, if you got classmates, talk to them, make some friends, <laughs> introduce yourself, uh, disagree about stuff, get in arguments, uh, you know, have fights. Like that, that's just part of human relationships. Uh, ask for forgiveness, apologize, repent. That's how you're going to grow in holiness. Hopefully you can also do that online, but I've would agree with those who would point out that uh, people on Twitter, especially, very bad at that. Uh, <laughs> so I, I want to encourage people, you know, that's like hard mode as far as, uh, you know, I think like monks, you know, the equivalent of St. Anthony today might be someone who's like, I'm going to live only on Twitter. That's where all the temptation is, right? <laughs> that's where all the nastiness is. I'm going to brave it out there. Um, I, I don't think most people are well equipped for that, that hard mode of uh, spiritual formation, at least not in their late teens, early 20s. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look into the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search for Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dylan. Thanks to John for the Acton Institute. I'm Dan Huger, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>